Welcome to The Bible and Our Culture, sponsored by Liberty Remnant Church. Hi, I'm Pastor Jay McPherson. If you want to contact me, you can through email, office at libertyremnantchurch.org. Office at libertyremnantchurch.org. I'm excited about this program, The Bible and Our Culture. It's always been imperative God's people view the culture through the lens of the Bible. Please don't view the Bible through the lens of today's culture. A lot of Christians think it's their job to do that. We should always be asking ourselves, what does the Bible say about whatever, anything important? What does the Bible say about fill in the blank? The Bible is not going to have a lot to say about what color you want to paint your bathroom. But on the important issues, there's a lot of good things to say. So we're asking ourselves the question, what does the Bible say? In our family, we have a unique story about this. Our youngest children are boy-girl twins, and they were busy. We called them the Destructo Twins because they could go into a room and destroy it in seconds, literally. I'm not exaggerating at all. And the busiest of the two was our son, the boy we call Zesty. Even though his name is Ezekiel, he's always been called Zesty because it fits him. And he was by far the fastest, busiest little baby I have ever seen. So we were constantly having to redirect him as he would destroy things. And my wife and I both felt it was important to maintain a united front with our children. That is to really back each other up and to try and reinforce each other's directions, each other's commands. So if she would tell one of the kids to do something or ask them not to do something, then I would try to be the one to intervene if they disobeyed. Hey, what did mommy say? And she in turn would do the same for me, that if I was trying to enforce something, then she would back me up and say, what did daddy say? So little baby Zesty, he heard, what did mommy say? What did daddy say? All the time. Well, one time I caught him doing something naughty in the hallway. I don't remember too clearly what it was, but his mom was downstairs doing laundry or something for quite a while. I think he was banging the walls with something sharp, scratching up the walls in the hallway. So, of course, I told him not to do that. Well, he turned at me, put his hands on his hips and scowled and said, Uh-huh, mommy say. And then he sighs and gives me this big eye roll. Like, how, do I, how can I put up with this foolish dad who doesn't know what mommy say? Well, there was no way mommy would say that he could do what he was doing. And I knew that full well. Besides, I thought I was head of the household. But I had to tell him as he's scowling at me and rolling his eyes, no, mommy didn't say you could do that. And then he got louder, stomped his foot a little bit. "Uh Uh-huh, mommy say. Well, at that point, his mom came upstairs, caught him lying to his daddy and said, oh, Zesty, I did not say you could do that. Do not lie. Well, he wasn't going to be deterred, so he thought for just a moment, "Uh uh-huh, Jakey say. Well, Jakey was his older cousin. He was about 15 years old at the time, and Zesty thought he was just too cool. We didn't realize until then how much he believed that his cousin Jakey outranked mom and dad. So when he realized mommy say wasn't going to work, he was going to Jakey say. But this instance, which we, we should have really got on him, but he was so cute, and we thought it was funny, we now have regular communication of mommy say or 
Jakey say or the newspaper say. That's kind of how we talk with each other. And I think if people overheard us, they think we were crazy. But when you're communicating with somebody, it's often best if you can not just spout your own opinion, but to cite your source. The newspapers say, or in the case that we're talking about, the Bible say. But we we still use this, you know, we're watching a show. That we, Why are we watching this show? Well, I heard it was good. Aunt Mary say the show was good. Why are we going to this restaurant? Because Cousin Melissa say. But it's a pretty good idea to cite your source. And elementary kids and toddlers, they realize that their words carry more weight if they can get the, the teacher said. I had a wonderful teacher in elementary school. Her name was Mrs. Soper. And I always knew I could get more weight to my words if I could say, Mrs. Soper said. Now they must believe I'm right. So I'm encouraging our listeners, cite your source. What does the Constitution say? What does the Bible say? And so this is a big deal at Liberty Remnant Church. We try to be a simple, relational, biblical church. Those three focuses is how we feel God has called us to build the church that he said he would build. So about every year, I try to preach a message about being a simple, relational, biblical church. And when I get to the biblical part, I usually tell the story about my son, Zesty. Bible say, because it really doesn't matter what I think on important issues. What really matters is what does the Bible say? Now, as I said on previous shows, God can speak to us in a lot of ways. If you're sensitive to his voice, if you're sensitive to his spirit, he can speak to us through nature, through the family of God, our, our brothers and sisters. He speaks to us in a still, small voice in many ways, but all of these are subservient to Scripture. What does the Bible say? The Bible is the final authority by which all else is judged. So you shouldn't really care what I'm saying about an issue. You should care first. What does the Bible say? And guess what? I think you shouldn't even really care what you think on an issue. You should think, what does the Bible say on an issue? It's this idea of forsaking our thoughts for God's higher thoughts. Isaiah says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. So we're constantly trying to reject our thoughts for his thoughts. And the standard and authority for all this is the Holy Scriptures. What does the Bible say? We are, as we grow in the Lord, we're getting rid of our inflated opinions and our own selfish perspectives and trying to gather everything that the Bible would say and have a biblical worldview. So I mentioned last week, there's no place in the Bible where it says, thou shalt not belch at the dinner table. But there's a lot of biblical truth that can give us, if you want to call it this, a doctrine of quenching your burps. Now, it's not much of a controversial issue, so we don't really think of it as a doctrine, but we look at what the Bible says. We got the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So that, to me, that would mean you don't belch at the dinner table. Philippians 2.4, each of you should look out not only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Don't belch at the dinner table. And all the many verses of 
love for one another, care for one another, be kind to one another, that if we needed to, we could develop a doctrine of, of squelching your burps. But with controversial issues of today, most of these are spelled out even more clearly in the Bible. Yet many believers won't go with what the Bible say. They get silenced into uh, not giving the biblical perspective, or they go along with the crowd even. And we can't afford to do that. Our culture needs to know what the Bible say, and that's why this program is entitled The Bible and Our Culture. So many people are, are talking about how we have to accept others' ideas, and if somebody feels like they're a boy trapped in a girl's body or a girl trapped in a boy's body, we should accept their opinions and experiences. Well, what's the Bible say? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So am I accepting people if I say there's only male and female, according to what the Bible say? I think I am. I am accepting them. The problem is they're not accepting themselves for who God created them to be. They're not accepting themselves within reality. If they're saying there's something they're not, that's not real. And the Bible has been very clear, what I think nature tells us, male and female. So we develop a biblical worldview and we hold fast to it. Doesn't really matter what I think. Doesn't really matter what you think. What matters is what does the Bible say and what does God think? And this is one example of many. Now, last time, we saw how Moses interceded on behalf of his fellow Israelites. God wanted to kill them. It's really clear, Numbers 14, God wanted to kill the children of Israel, but Moses advocated for them and seemingly changed God's mind. God obviously knew Moses would stand in the gap for his countrymen, but it was a lesson we can learn about how God wants us to ask for mercy. He really does. He's He's a merciful God, even though he's also a God of judgment. And it's like he is committed to us, his people, this role of intercession, this role of pleading for mercy for others to him. A verse that I think really explains what Moses was doing here in Numbers 14, and we talked about it last week, is Ezekiel 22.30. God says, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me, on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Right? So God's saying, hey, I didn't want to destroy the land, and I looked for somebody who would stand in the gap, who would be an intercessor, but nobody rose to the occasion like Moses did. So in verse 31, God says, therefore I have poured out my indignation on them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. So God works through his people to play the role of advocate, to play the role of intercessors. 1 Corinthians 3.9 and 2 Corinthians 6.1 says we are co-laborers together with God. Right? What's, God co what's God's co-workers look like? Well, it looks like you and me. It looks like his church. And so we ask for mercy for our nation. We ask for mercy for our state and our city. We ask for mercy for people in our family who aren't putting him first. And we implore the wicked to repent. And guess what? If they do, we accept them as family. We implore the wicked to repent and 
And if not, I think we have to pray that they'll be removed. We stand in the gap and say, Lord, would you please move upon these wicked people in the news media? Cause them to repent. Meet with them in a powerful way. Show yourself to them. But if they continue to go on reporting lies, then we say, Lord, if they don't repent, you got to remove them. Why? Because we care about the people they're deceiving. We're interceding for those people as well. And so many people, like probably the person that's uh, sitting with you right now, yourself, probably has believed lies of the media. I, I know I have. And so we're constantly on alert of what's the truth. And we want to be that intercessor who stands in the gap before God on behalf of our nation. Now, our political opponents don't deserve mercy. But the question is, who does? You didn't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's mercy. But he was merciful to me anyway. So I plead to God for an intervention in our political opponents, in the business people who are are perverting our society, the, the lying news media, corruption anywhere. Lord, meet with them. Not so that they continue to sin, but so that they can catch a revelation of God's truth and repent. And as I mentioned earlier, more importantly, we want to plead for mercy, advocating for those who are oppressed, those who are being deceived. We will readily accept anyone who repents, but we have no tolerance for oppression, injustice, and corruption. How did Jesus live? Did he confront oppressors? You betcha he did. Pharisees, Herod, even his disciples when they were getting out of hand. But he also showed compassion on the oppressed. I think we want to live like Jesus in this area. Jesus would have gladly received the Pharisees if they would have humbled themselves and repented. We know of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, Pharisees who we believe were followers of him. But when they were oppressing others, he was up in their grill. Why? Because he had compassion on those who they were deceiving and oppressing. We see the same with many heroes in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha were prophets who confronted evil, confronted kings, but they also showed compassion on widows and orphans. John the Baptist was that way. Most people in the Bible, they were strong. If they were heroes of the faith, they were strong against people who were oppressive, people who were deceitful, people who were arrogant. But like God himself, he loves it when we humble ourselves. So we're looking for humble people who are being oppressed to stand up for them, to plead for mercy on their behalf, that God would intervene. And often as God intervenes, he asks us who are praying to intervene, to help out. So I believe we must confront evil, whether it's in the legal system, if it's in the White House, if it's in Congress, if it's in the state legislature, if it's in the news media, in the entertainment industry, in business, in education, and especially our own lives. We are his representatives, we talked about last week, we are his ambassadors, we confront evil, and we offer hope and salvation to others. 
The best way to win against oppression, injustice, and corruption in any area of culture that I can think of is for repentance. It's far better if the libs would repent rather than we, I own those libs in a debate. Sometimes we get our competitive juices flowing and we want to win arguments. Well, if we could intercede and we could get the oppressive, the unjust, the corrupt to repent, well, that'd be a bigger win than just winning a debate. What if within the January 6th propaganda machine, that would be people from Congress and the news media, what if they began to repent for their dishonesty and started blowing the whistle on everything and everybody? That'd be way better than just having them removed. Now, if they won't repent, if they won't humble themselves, then, praise God, I think they're going to have to be removed. Whatever the case, God is looking for someone to stand in the gap on behalf of America that he should not destroy it. Will he find an intercessor like Moses standing in behalf, standing on behalf of the lost, confused, and hurting people? There's all sorts of them. And God's heart beats for these people more than we do even. We have to get his mind and say, who are humble, who's willing to listen, who's willing to repent and come along and support what God's doing in their heart and mind. At the same time, that doesn't mean we just say nice things to everybody and never confront wickedness. Because even in this story of Numbers 14, God listened to Moses' intercession? Kind of. He listened to it a little bit. In other words, he didn't wipe him out at that moment. He says, all right, Moses, I'm going to let these people live for another 40 years. And everybody 20 years old or older, they're going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to enter the promised land. But those under 20, they're going to grow up with a new, fresh attitude. They're going to be the people that take the promised land. So he still didn't let them into the promised land. He said, my, uh, my glory will be seen throughout the earth. He would not just overlook the faith, the faithlessness and fear that the children of Israel had that should have known better. They knew that God was on their side. He knew, they knew what he had called them to do. They saw the miracles. They should have just gladly said, hey, he's going to keep working miracles for us in the promised land, the land that he promised to our fathers and obeyed, but they didn't. So I guess God's a tough customer. We don't want to get on his bad side. We want to fear God and repent. Well, Liberty Remnant, Rem, excuse me, Liberty Remnant Church, we've often said that we are a local church who loves God, our neighbors, and our nation. And some people are like, "Ooh, you're you're getting out there. You're you're caring about our nation. You're trying to, to be a new version of church." And I'm like, "Absolutely not. We're trying to be a biblical church. The way we've uh, orchestrated our local congregation is." Liberty Remnant Church is not intended to be anything but a local congregation who reflects the one bride the Father is preparing for his son. We believe in a victorious church. We are holding firm to the basic tenets of biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not always the same as historical Christianity. Certainly not the same as contemporary Christianity. We're going with what the Bible says. Say, what does the Bible say? 
on every issue. And so that is the stand that we're going to take. We believe that's what God's always intended for his church. So if we love our nation as we believe God wants us to, and if we speak out against evil and stand up against oppression and stand for the liberty of the oppressed, then we're going to speak out on issues. And to me, that's just ordinary biblical Christianity. That's what God's asking of his church in this hour. I mentioned earlier, we build with three focuses. We want to be a simple, relational, and biblical church. It's pretty natural for me, I think, at this point in my walk with the Lord to have a biblical church because that's kind of the blueprint for which I try to live my life. I don't, again, I don't care what people think. What does the Bible say? And at this point in my life, I think it's pretty natural to be a relational church. Relationships are what it's all about. Can't take anything you see with you to heaven, but you can take people. So everything's about relationships. What's been hardest for us is to be a simple church. Man, things get complicated quickly. So we've had to say, all right, things are getting a little crazy. Let's just go back to keeping it simple. I think you might be familiar with the KISS principle. Think about that often. KISS is an acronym, stands for Keep It Simple Stupid. And when things get too complicated, we say, let's not, let's not go that way. Let's kill that. Let's be a simple, relational, biblical church. So if you're looking for a church or you know somebody who is, we'd love to have you come to Liberty Remnant Church. Check it out. See what God's doing. We see ourselves as a spirit-filled church, but mostly a simple, relational, and biblical church. If you want to support our program, maybe you're involved in a church, but you want to be part of what God's doing and reap some of the, the blessing that he's doing uh, with this radio show, or the Bible in our culture, or with what God's doing at Liberty Remnant Church, you can support this program. Go to libertyremnantchurch.org backslash give, and you can contribute that way. And if you come to church, you're going to probably feel a little bit of what you feel on the radio show, that we are in an effort to be biblical. We're divorcing our thoughts for God's thoughts as much as we can. Kind of a key verse is Isaiah 55, verses 7 through 9. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Boy, that's infinitely higher God's thoughts than mine. As high as the heavens are above the earth, his thoughts and his ways are way higher than mine. But you can observe as you look at this passage, verse 8, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Well, which ones are right? Well, God knows everything. He's omniscient. I know so little. I know so little about so little. Think about it. There's, there's a, a bug in the southeast corner of Brazil right now that God knows everything about that bug, where it came from. I don't even think about the southwest corner of Brazil. That's how higher God's ways are than mine and how higher his thoughts than mine. He knows everything about everything, and he knew it before the foundations of the world. He invented time. He's, 
He's outside of time. So it makes perfect logical sense that I would be pursuing his thoughts. I'd be pursuing what God says. I'd be pursuing his ways and know him as intimately as I can and build my life on what he says, build my life on the scriptures. Jesus said this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He goes on to talk about how the, the rains came down, the floods rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But he goes on to say, those who hear his words and don't put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. When the rains came down, the floods rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell with a great crash. So, man, I want to build my life on what Jesus says. Both the builders in that story, both the wise man and the foolish man, both went through the same storms, went through the same floods, the, the same winds. They experienced probably the same part, a lot of the same things in life that everybody experiences. But Jesus isn't focusing on, well, the wise man had an easy life. He's saying, oh, the wise man had storms too, but the wise man's house, the wise man's life didn't fall because he built upon the rock. But when the foolish man went through a storm, marital problem, family problem, financial problem, problem at the work, well, he didn't have his life built on Jesus, so his life crashed. You know, we live in a day where there's a lot of crashed lives, so to speak. So much dysfunction. People on the brink of suicide. People can't uh, keep a relationship. They don't know how to live with each other. They don't know how to manage their money. They don't know how to live. Some are in debt, broke. Some have finances, but they're addicted to all sorts of things. Some don't have any of that, but they don't know how to live. They're still suicidal. They're like, what is the purpose and meaning of life? But if we build our life according to what Jesus said, if we think, what does the Bible say? Then we can build solidly. You know, it takes a while to build a good, big, strong house. If somebody told you, hey, you get saved and everything's going to be rosy peachy, they weren't really telling you the truth. You get saved and now you start building your house and you got to go through storms. And Jesus said, if you follow him, you're going to be hated like he was hated. So in some ways, in many ways, our life's harder as a Christian in terms of what we go through. But because we're anchored to him, because we're building after his ways and thoughts, we survive and thrive and enjoy the true peace. Joy unspeakable and full of glory is the promise that God has for us. doesn't mean we won't go through challenges, but if we build our life on what he has, we can enjoy confidence that comes only with the fear of him. Well, I've enjoyed spending this time with you. Hope you can catch us at the same time next week. And if you have any questions about our local church, Liberty Remnant Church, the sponsor of the show, you can go to libertyremnantchurch.org or you can email me at office at libertyremnantchurch.org. Mm-hmm.